you believe the stories that you tell yourself about how things are. So And so often you're wrong. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of my favorite artists from the 80s and 90s. And this week, we're going to do something we haven't done before, and that's released two episodes this week. Today's episode is with Nick Feldman, a founding member of the 80s new wave band Wang Chung, and later in the week, we'll have his bandmate Jack Hughes on for an episode. Today, Nick tells us about the rise of his band and how chance meetings with key people altered the course of their history. So uh, I suppose my uh, what I want to talk about has kind of two threads to it. So sort of key meetings with with people uh, and the kind of stories that we tell ourselves uh, in life and how wrong we can be about what we think is the truth. Um, so I think key people I met, well, you know, obviously Jack, my partner in Wang Chung, uh, he, he's, he was a very key person for me because... You know, I, I met him by putting an ad in the Melody Maker. So it was sheer luck that I found him. I put this, sort of, I spent a load of money on creating this uh, rather important looking ad advert in the Melody Maker and making myself seem uh, as someone when in fact I wasn't um, and put all the money I had into this ad. And, uh, you know, uh, Jack sort of answered uh, answered the, the call. Uh, I auditioned him. I, uh, quite a lot of people answered it actually, because I think I did a good job on the ad. And um, but he stood out as the best person for me. He, he was, you know, I, I devised this sort of quite complicated guitar chord sequence that um, that he managed to uh, navigate really well. And uh, anyway, he was obviously right. And so that started a long association together in sailing. We had our ups and our downs, but. Um, it was uh, obviously the fact that we're talking now to, to having this interview is testament to the longevity of the success we've had together. We're still good friends. You know, we, we, we sort of we, we've uh, ebbed and flowed together sort of along the years. But when you think you're in a situation, I suppose to quote John Lennon, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. So we, we thought, to, we, we, Jack and I eventually managed to get a, a record deal with Arista Records. It was, you know, quite a good deal. We made what turned out to be a record that we're proud of. We made a good record, but, you know, it didn't have the, it didn't have the big hit song on it. And um, so the record company, eventually started to sort of question and started to slightly question their belief in, in what we were doing. And and it, and it was the writing was on the wall and it was quite clear to, to us that we were probably on the, on the brink of getting dropped. I remember sitting in a room with Jack and the band and uh, have this sense of, uh, 
impending doom about it. And, and it was really quite uh, quite a difficult moment where, you know, we, we were, I, I remember thinking, what the hell am I going to do with my life? You know, I've had a, a little go at doing something in the music uh, business, um, sort of following my dream, but it's clearly not going to work out. And once we've been dropped, it's probably, we've probably had it. So, and then sort of cut to next scene, as they say. I cut to next scene was us sort of being signed to Geffen Records in the US, you know, uh, and just embarking on a very successful uh, record, uh, Points on the Curve, had various hits on it. Suddenly we were sort of really successful very quickly and we got to that point by um you know by chance meeting so another chance meeting my, i used to live with my sister she, her good friend was someone called david massey david massey came over to see her one day and and then we i kind of got talking to him and i played him the huang chung record and told him that you know we were struggling a bit and that things were looking a bit sort of you know that the record company had stopped really believing in us and we felt that this might be it and he you know we had a really interesting chat and he said some interesting things he was young he'd been was very keen to get into the music business proper and he sort of bored with his job that he had uh in Paris at the time, working at Berberis. And I just thought, well, this guy's he's clever. I like what he's saying. I just instinctively asked him if he'd be interested to manage us. And uh, he was like, I'd love to do that. And, you know, his cutting again, a long story short, he managed to, after a lot of bobbing and weaving, managed to extricate us out of the Arista deal. And... We'd gone into the studio and recorded some new stuff, one of which, one song of which was Dance All Days. Uh, he played that those demos to Geffen in America, and they just freaked out, loved it. And uh, John Kolodner, who was the A&R guy there, signed us. Uh, so suddenly, you know, we'd been, I'd been sitting, we'd sitting in that room kind of feeling pretty despondent about our whole musical career being only 10 minutes long and uh suddenly we were getting signed by you know geffen in the u.s <laughs> and uh you know shortly after that we we're in the studio recording at abbey road and, um we were and then shortly after that we we're in the in the american charts so i suppose the lesson from that is uh you know obviously key people are very key to uh but also the kind of stories you tell yourself the the what what you assume is the case isn't necessarily the case so just be open to new things happening and as woody allen once said just show up uh, so i think that's what we did and um and things just shifted I think the next chance, the key meeting was uh, with William Freakin, the legendary film director, 
uh, of the yeah, the Exorcist and the French Connection. Um, Jack and I had sort of got bogged down again um, this time after the success of Points on the Curve, getting a lot of pressure from the record company. Oh, where's the hit? Where's the hit? Where's the hit? We hadn't, we couldn't. Everything we wrote was good, but it wasn't quite working. Didn't quite cut the mustard. And for the as far as the record company were concerned about hit record. And we were starting to feel, oh, God, this is all heading in a bad direction. It was exactly at that time, like the cavalry coming over the hill, that William Friedkin approached us to do the soundtrack to his new movie, To Live and Die in L.A., that he was uh, editing. And he not only did he not want a hit single, he didn't even want a song. He didn't want, he just wanted instrumental music, gritty, sort of dark, energetic based on, he was inspired by the song Wait that we'd recorded for Points on the Curve. So the brief was literally the opposite, the diametric opposite to what we were getting from Geffen Records. Uh, and it was incredibly liberating. It was inspiring and also very exciting to be working with a Hollywood legend like uh, William Freakin. And I think, so the whole process of that, uh, experience took the pressure off us commercially. It stimulated us. It, it cleared, it sort of cleansed our palate, if you like, and gave us a kind of an amazing experience. And it very much paved the way for us to be able to sort of get back on the the kind of horse of our sort of more pop rock career and be able to write song and record songs like everybody have fun tonight and let's go and, and all the big hits that came off mosaic you know um so it, it was uh a very key and pivotal moment to use the appropriate word as the whole thing took shape and then we had this sort of idea of why don't we because you know William Freakin was so incredibly positive about what we sent him, he was so excited about it. He even started cutting the movie to the music that we sent him. It was all very spontaneous and very kind of liberating. So the whole project started to morph into something else. And then you know Jack wrote a song called "To Live and Die in L.A.," which Freakin hadn't asked for a song at all. Sent that to him. He loved that. And he even cut, even shot a whole sequence in the movie, especially to put that song into the movie. So that's when we had the idea, why don't we make this our next album instead of, you know, doing what the kind of album that Geffen were hoping we were going to do. Let's do not only a soundtrack, let's write some more songs and sort of hybridise, you know, it between songs and instrumental stuff which is basically what we did and when we did that and, and once there was a song called to live and die in la i think geffen started to see that maybe they could it had something for them to work with you know and they could kind of uh get behind it being the next stage in our sort of pop career if you know what i mean um so they were initially very reluctant but in the end they kind of went with it so, yeah, and it turned into you know, a successful record and the film didn't do, it did okay sort of in theatrically, but um, it, it went to number two, I think. But but um, but I think it became a big hit in the rental market, the, the movie. 
And I think our album sort of just sold solidly, even though To Live and Die in L.A. itself was maybe not the most obvious sort of hit song. Uh, I, I remember John Colodna, the A&R guy, saying the, that these the track sort of the chorus went it went down it goes down into the chorus you know instead of up <laughs> so <laughs> things like that which were quite hard to deal with but um but we stuck to our guns and the whole thing overall became a success for for us and a very strong follow-up album to to points on the curve you know i think after another sort of key moment for me was after uh, you know we toured in 1987 we we toured a lot you know with six months on the road i was finding it i found the first half of that period quite difficult because uh, i just wanted to be in the studio and writing and recording and i particularly enjoy playing live then um, and, and I sort of found it sort of emotionally, physically quite difficult. And I sort of reached this crisis point where I just, you either go with it or you you kind of crash and burn. And I so I decided to go with it and sort of rode the horse the way it's going, so to speak. And uh, But I think with that went a certain kind of rock and roll kind of, you know, way of... Uh, of, of going with that with a flow a bit almost too much if you know what I mean um life on the road and I think at the end of that I, I was pretty ill uh and I ended up and again I'm cutting a, a long story short I ended up you know back in London after it all up was over in um in hospital you know uh but I, I got, basically, I got Crohn's disease and I was in total agony. I couldn't do anything and uh, I couldn't go out. I couldn't eat properly. I was just sort of housebound. And in the end, I got some horrible complications and I had to have for surgery. So I remember coming around after the operation and I just felt for, for a couple of days just so absolutely awful. I just thought I would never recover you know that my life was permanently sort of ruined you know and um but but slowly and surely i got better and uh became human again and and sort of uh i suppose i'll never forget that story that i had in my head that i was forever destroyed and i would never recover and you know and within not that long, I was sort of able to live a sort of much better life and um, get back on the horse and do all sorts of stuff. So, so that was a sort of profound moment of uh, realising what we tell ourselves isn't always right. And just to, be, to keep yourself open to, as I said before, just show up and to be open to possibilities and to not presume that you know how things are that maybe there's something else going on so uh th i'll never forget that uh and i think that led sort of very interestingly on to the rest of my life really you know we'd, we'd done chuck and i had done warmer side of cool 
it didn't quite work out. It wasn't a commercial success enough. Uh, Geffen decided to sort of part company with us. And then Jack decided to um, that he wanted to move on as well. So that, that was so we we all went into a quite a challenging period of sort of where you have to kind of reinvent yourself. You have to, uh, you know, you, you got used to living in a certain way and suddenly everything's changing. And I personally felt very uh, quite insecure. I'd lost a lot of confidence. I felt very, didn't know what to do with my life. Um, felt very vulnerable. And it, that, it was at that time that uh, my old friend, John Moss, became the very, John Moss from Culture Club, you know, the drummer with Culture Club. Uh, he became a, a really important part of my sort of recovery. Uh, I'd been in the studio with Tony Swain, who who'd actually was the producer of To Live and Die in LA. I'd had this idea of doing, of doing a cover of Something in the Air by uh, Thunderclap Newman. And I really liked the song and I sang it pretty well. And I had this whole sort of idea of how to do it with a with that kind of soul to soul beat that was uh, just starting to be popular at the time. Um, and John, I played to John, who's, you know, my old friend, and he absolutely loved it. He said, let's let me get involved and I can I think I can improve the the kind of the overall uh, sort of rhythmic side of it. And so we worked together on it and uh, and it became a really big sort of club record, a really sort of anthemic um, underground sort of club record. It was the summer of love in, in the UK. And, you know, both of us were kind of slightly wounded from our experiences with our respective bands. I, I was sort of feeling a bit sort of, um, you know, hurt and, disorientated by what had happened with Wang Chung and and as was John with the Culture Club. So we decided to do this track and um we put we we went with an independent label and um we we didn't say who we were. We just kind of kept ourselves anonymous. And and you know it became this sort of really cool underground thing. Uh, and you know NME sort of made it their single of the week and interesting to me is that having sort of come out of Wang Chung feeling slightly almost slightly ashamed about being in Wang Chung it, it was a very that that was the story I was telling myself I, th I think we had been perceived by those in the UK is that we'd sort of gone off and sold our souls to America and and uh, so, so there was a certain amount of inverted snobbery about us in the UK at the time so you know that was quite wounding so you kind of uh 
in the end, you, uh, I, I think I'd sort of taken that on board much too much. Uh, so when we started, when I started working with John, there was all this sort of new energy. He kind of really believed and was really into what I was doing. And, and then, you know, uh, the reaction we got was so strong. And then we ended up, you know, once the, the something in the air had done well, we, we, uh, we did some more recording and, uh, and, and I really felt completely revitalized and really uh, affirmed and, 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 kind of proud and uh i think I'll, I'll never forget that sort of uh from morphing from that slightly wounded almost ashamed person into something that i felt much more you know in, in my power more proud of what uh, what we were doing uh, so and that was uh, again a pivotal moment i think for my development after feeling in a bit of a creative slump Another chance encounter results in a bit of a career left turn for Nick. So after Promised Land, and uh, I, you know, I think I, I sort of again that didn't quite work out. The timing was it worked out very well at the beginning, but it ultimately didn't work out. We we we, we fell back into that familiar. We we signed to Epic Records in in the US. It, it was the timing of it was just completely wrong. It, it was it was when grunge was just starting. And the kind of music we were playing was the opposite, really. So it was it was the wrong sort of time. So in the end, uh, that didn't work out, and and I sort of felt maybe a little bit lost for a couple of years, sort of. But then my father met Rob Dickens at some do that he was at. Um, Rob Dickens, the chairman of of Warner Brothers UK and previously the Warner Brothers worldwide, you know, and uh, he, they just spoke about me and, uh, and Rob said to my dad, I'll just tell him to come and see me. So uh, I went to go and see Rob Dickens. We had lunch together and he was very warm towards me. And, uh, but I didn't think anything of it other than, you know, I felt a bit sort of nervous to be honest with you, because I was still sort of suffering from this, slight shame of my past you know and uh, and then I the next week I got a call from uh, from Warner Brothers saying would you like to come and work for us as an A&R guy you know I was like what so um, <laughs> I ended up so of course I was sort of delighted about that and I think at that particular point I think I was creatively in a state of sort of exhaustion I'd, I was tired of generating everything myself so the thought of working as an A&R guy, working with other people's creativity and helping them to achieve something good uh, became much more appealing to me. But again, I suffered from feelings of being a bit of an imposter. It took me a long time to, to grow into the role, if you like. And, uh, and it also, uh, you know, I had to rewire my brain to a certain degree, you know, because I had a whole completely different perspective on things, and I and I really learned a lot from that whole experience. And I did A and I, I mean, I for about twelve years or so, and I ended up being head of A and R for Sony Europe as well. So I mean, I had a, a very wide and very interesting career doing that, and I learned a hell of a lot. But it's quite uh, one thing that I really quickly realised was that my background of being in Wang Chung, of having been there and done it and been successful, 
it helped me to and the way people responded to it which was really sort of positive and impressed and uh, and it really helped me to do a good job you know and i could speak the language to the the same language to the the musicians i was dealing with i understood how they felt i learned how to to understand the the other side of things the mute the uh the, the record company side of things and i felt very i became much more proud of what i had previously achieved it was very good for me to sort of reappraise my whole career really and my and myself you know and uh, again that's yet another example of you know you think you know how things are you believe the stories that you tell yourself about how things are so and so often you're wrong you know you're telling yourself stuff that isn't true uh, and uh, if you just sort of put yourself in the flow of things and you show up and have an open mind and be ready then it's incredible what can happen And then for, uh, sort of finally, I suppose I'd sort of like to acknowledge my now wife, you know, who uh, w once we kind of moved in together, uh, I suddenly found myself, and again, I, to my own surprise, being very inspired, uh, so creatively. So I, I didn't think I would ever, and it was natural. So, so the songs basically have been pouring out of me the last few years, and, and I'm very keen to record them both with Wang Chung and solo as well, which whichever is appropriate. But I, I'm sort of, I would never have expected that to happen, to be honest with you. I, I thought that race was run for me, you know, but I, don't, I think I'm more fertile now, creatively speaking, than I think I've ever been. I think I feel more on my game, not only as a performer, but as a, as a writer than I've ever done before. And I love playing live now, whereas back in the 80s, I didn't enjoy it so much. And now I, I enjoy it because uh, it's so great to be able to interact much more directly with the fans. It's easier these days to do that. Also, I'm just much more who I am, I think. I, I don't feel the need to have to define myself like I clearly felt I used to have to do. So, so I can sort of just embrace it more and enjoy it and uh and it's very rewarding and so yeah i feel incredibly in a very good place both as a performer and a writer and who'd have thunk i'm not getting any younger so it's uh, it's been a gratifying point on the curve i'm on a good point on the curve to use an appropriate expression
And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Nick for being on the show. We'll have his partner in Wang Chung, Jack Hughes, on the show later this week. And a quick reminder that you can also buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel, Live Through That, on 90s artists. You can buy that wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please leave a review where you're listening. It always helps the algorithm find us. And of course, subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.